Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the latest uh, MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. Every month we're bringing you insight from senior leaders across the NHS to help you stay connected to the change that's going on. Uh, we'll be getting to grips with the NHS, exploring all the challenges our guests face, how they may respond to them, and, and more and more so what the future is going to look like as various political and strategic agendas develop. Um, and the idea is all about connecting you with people who are driving change in the NHS. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John Ribchester, who is the Clinical Director of Whitstable Primary Care Network. John is a, a bit of a pioneer in primary care, has spearheaded lots of uh, new initiatives and different ways of doing things, I suppose. We're going to explore a few of those today. Uh, and is a really uh, insightful guy to, to be speaking with today. So thank you very much for joining me, John. Um, for everyone in the audience as well, there are hopefully on the right of your screen some handouts which are our summaries of the NHS or, or of the uh, governmental white paper on the changes to the NHS uh, in case you haven't already seen them so feel free to download those. So John, um, welcome this afternoon, thanks for joining us. Um, for those of in the audience that don't know you, uh, could you just quickly summarise your organisation and your role? Yes, thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I'm um, executive partner of the Whitstall Medical Practice, which pioneered um, the concept of primary care networks along with other um, so-called MCPs. Um, when Simon Stevens first came to, uh, came, came to power, he suggested that we ought to be working in bigger groups than ordinary sized general practices, roughly 10,000 patients and new care models were promoted and a three-year trial was done. Um, we, along with other medical practices, formed the Encompass multi-professional community provider and the proof from that was used to inform the development of primary care networks. So um, Whitstable is now a single practice primary care network which has certain advantages we can explore later, um, but it was an easy transition for us to try to carry on with what we were already doing, which was providing hopefully high quality general practice alongside local care, local health and community care. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. And like you say, there's, there's already in that one sentence, there's, there's huge amounts for us to explore, I think. Um, before we get into that, you, you joined me all the way back in June and we talked about uh, the impact of COVID on, on primary and community care. Could you just catch us up in the in the eight months since? Um, what's changed in primary care? What have you seen? Well, it's been a huge challenge for all of us. Um, principally with ordinary GMS services, everything now starts with a remote consultation. Um, so it's either by good old fashioned telephone or by video consultation. Only then is a judgment made about whether a patient genuinely needs a face-to-face -face contact. And in addition to that, um, e-consultations um, are part of the landscape. Um, previously, only the enthusiasts were interested in that. I think we're all doing that now. Um, actually, within our buildings, we are having to implement social distancing for staff and patients. So there are three quarters of the chairs are missing now and uh, small numbers of people are in in a socially distanced way. And we are trying to maintain that business as usual, if you can call it usual, alongside COVID specific um, <clears throat> issues. And that includes um, the pulse oximetry at home for people who are positive for COVID, but aren't ill enough to need to be in hospital. Um, they self monitor for a fortnight and we receive the results and if the oxygen levels go down then that's an early warning to get them into hospital before they feel breathless 
And the other thing that many PCNs are doing, us included, um, is COVID vaccination program. Um, and ours is, I think I'm right in saying, the only drive-through COVID vaccination site in England. Um, and we are vaccinating 100 an hour um, up to the number of vaccines we receive. Uh, currently, we get one or two deliveries of 1,200 a week. So we're doing up to 2,500 a week in our drive-through. Um, have your vac have vaccinations taken over completely in the last couple of weeks, or are you still doing a fair amount of? We, we seem to be um, either getting one delivery of twelve hundred or two alternate weeks. So um, you know we're we're just slightly ahead of the target, and um, we are we are now on the second wave of extremely vulnerables um, between the age of eighteen and sixty five. Um, and we've done all the care homes. Um, that wasn't supposed to be our job, but we've done them anyway. Um, and um, health and social care professionals and um, everybody um, down to, we're about, we're about age 66 now, we're down to, and we're going down in date order and the vulnerable groups, as I've said. Are, are there people that you're not seeing at the moment that you think you should be? I got that. Thank you. Yes, I mean, that, that's a concern for all of us, I think, that people aren't presenting with non-COVID symptoms. Um, two reasons, really. Some people feel they don't want to bother the doctor. Um, other people want to stay away for fear of catching COVID. So that's a concern for us and it's a concern for our hospital colleagues as well. Yeah, OK, thank you. Um, I'm hoping that my, my mic's going to stand up to this. Um, You've talked about some of the change that you brought in, that you, you've done things differently out of necessity through COVID. What of those sort of operational changes are you hoping to keep as we come through the pandemic? The operational changes we will probably keep um, to a large extent is the concept of, of starting with a GP or nurse triage with a remote consultation. Um, we, we've discovered that um, this actually works for a much greater percentage of people than we previously thought. And also um, quite a lot of patients enjoy it um, because it's much more convenient than having to drive to the surgery um, and it's much more accessible. You know, by and large, people will get a remote consultation within half a day of when they ask for it, whereas a GP appointment might be a couple of days ahead, unless, of course, it's urgent, in which case that'll be immediate. Yeah, OK. And I, uh, certainly my experience in primary care of, of bringing these new types of working in in the past has been kind of a, a mistrust or a, a, a possibly through a lack of understanding. Um, and that I, I think that perception that if you're not seeing someone in the room with you, you're not getting all the cues, all the information. Do you see any downsides to that remote consulting way? Yes, indeed. I mean, you, you do pick up something by just observing your patient almost subconsciously when they come in. Do they look, they look slightly thinner in the face? Um, are they anemic? Are they jaundiced? You can't really pick that up in a remote consultation. Um, unfortunately, face to face, it's not as easy either at the moment because, of course, we're all masked up. And to pick up psychological cues about how someone's feeling when they're masked up is a bit different, you know, difficult. You may see a few wrinkles around the eyebrows or the forehead, but you can't pick up the whole facial expressions. Just picking up on that idea around the, the white paper that came out last week, and that's indicated direction of travel for the NHS. What, what are your reflections on, on some of the things within that white paper? Right, well, it, it, it's really, um, a lot of it's more of the same. I mean, it was announced at the very beginning that we were going to have um, uh, a move towards from small to large CGs were going to become ITS. And that is, in fact, what's happening. So there's nothing new about that. Um, the, the concept of the Secretary of State having more influence over major decisions, such as hospitals being created or um, destroyed. Again, there, there's nothing really new about that either, um, because he can do that now. So I suppose a lot of us are thinking, is this just another illusionary piece of progress? Um, because we get this every so many years, the NHS reorganizes itself. You get stasis with regard to making any clinical progress while everyone gets new names and new positions and then maybe a year after that you might get back to making some clinical change so I think 
some of us who have been around for a while, such as myself, um, are a little bit skeptical that there's going to be an awful lot of change. Yeah, okay. So over the last couple of years, we, we've heard various noises from within the NHS saying that, that not no real change would happen without legislation. Now, now legislation has been suggested. Do you think actually it is an enabler? I mean, you've obviously been doing some of the integrated working for, for some time now. D does this really make a difference to you in practice, the, the legislative element? I think the worry for primary care networks, um, which are you know, described as the building block for the new NHS within ICPs, that's integrated care partnerships, and then an overall integrated care system, the worry is that the PCNs have got no influence, they've got no tools with which to do the job. And uh, going to your point about legislation, legislation might be good if it gave PCNs a percentage of the patient budget for um, acute care um, and, um, and chronic care as well. But at the moment, we've got none of that. And neither do the CCGs have much money, certainly in our neighborhood. Um, and also they don't seem to have the ability to via money from um, acute trusts into primary care networks. Uh, which is a terrible shame because the, the main reason for primary care networks is to develop local care and take those services out of hospital into the community where we've been able to prove through the new care models you can get better care closer to home at less cost but unless there's any funding at all you, you can't really start and I think a lot of PCNs are finding this frustrating. Okay, so what, what's the secret going to be to transferring that budget? Is, is it simply the case of someone at a central level saying money's going to be here rather than there? Or, or is there something that PCNs need to do locally in order to kind of earn that trust, as it were? Well, the best that can happen is that we can work with um, acute trusts and develop local care systems and new pathways. I mean, there's no reason, for instance, um, why fracture clinics should exist in a hospital. They can exist in the community where you have x-ray, as we do. Um, there's no reason why DVTs should have to go to a hospital. That can be treated locally where you have a D-dimer blood test and ultrasound, again, like we have. Um, many of these things can be developed to the benefit of the patient, which is probably the most important thing, surely, um, but also to the benefit of the system because it's, it's faster and it's less expensive. And similarly, with a network of consultants working with gypsies, GPs with special interests, who now appear to be called jiffers, GPs with extended roles, um, if we can do that properly, a lot of what goes to outpatient departments doesn't have to go there. And if you have PCNs with either outreach clinics with consultants, with or without jippers and the necessary diagnostic equipment, we could do so much better than the very hospital-centric expensive system that we currently have. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And, and obviously, you, you've got really good experience in, in leading some of these initiatives, taking some of that care into new settings. How do you get to that point? How do you sort of prioritise those things? How do you come to agreements locally about which areas to focus on? Well, we've worked through about five different incarnations of um, NHS management, um, starting off with um, uh, PCGs, then PCD, PCTs, then CCGs, and now integrated care partnerships. And I, I think the important thing is to have the enthusiasm and the vision to actually want to develop integrated care. And I'm fortunate and I work in a good team where that really is the vision, both, both for urgent care in that we run an urgent treatment center with fracture clinic and DVT service and x-ray 12 hours a day, 365 days a year, but also in elective care. And we have a range of outpatients, diagnostics and day surgery, including cataract and dermatology. And there's a huge enthusiasm within the practice PCN that I work in to do all of this. Um, it also makes for a huge amount more job satisfaction, both for doctors, nurses, paramedics, and the ARRS roles, because you can do so much more and complete whole patient journeys, rather than have to refer patients in large numbers for simple things like diagnostics or basic outpatient appointments. 
So a lot of job satisfaction, huge amount of patient satisfaction, and in my way of thinking, integrated care is the way forward um, to keep general practice sustainable. Um, however, you do need the enthusiasm and you've got to keep pushing on doors that don't open immediately. Yeah, okay. And you, you mentioned in your in your introductory comments and you referenced it just there, the importance of being, or, or for your from your perspective, the importance of being a single practice PCN. Can you just give a little, sort of expand a little bit on that? And, and is it, do you see that as an evolution of primary care that there will be more of these sort of Single super practices or single practice PCNs emerging. Yeah, I, I think I think it's um, a very relevant point because my colleagues who I speak to on a daily basis, who are in PCNs with two or sometimes many more general practices, struggle with joint employment of clinicians and managers. They they struggle with how to apportion the time of people in. ARRS roles, you know, how much of the, of the first contact, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> first contact physiotherapy do you have, how much do I have, and also just trying to get everyone pulling together in the same direction with the same strategy is a real problem if you've got two or three practices who aren't thinking exactly the same as each other. Um, I, I unfortunately get quite smug that none of this um, comes anywhere near us. Um, you know, we are one practice with um, a management team that we elect with clinicians working alongside very good um, specialist managers. Um, we don't have to worry about who has the ARRS roles because, of course, it's one practice and uh, all of the accountancy and VAT issues, they just don't appear. And I think we are seeing up and down the country um, practices combining into bigger and bigger units and uh, I, I would predict that there will be many more single practice PCNs as time goes on. That's really interesting to hear and, and thinking about sort of that that practice sort of the optimal practice size for PCNs of 30 to 50,000 patients or, or at least that's that's the theorized size anyway do you think that that is a good size population for you to be managing does it feel like a manageable size well, yes. I mean, we, we, we've been 40,000 for a good many years now. And with 25 GPs, we have a staff of 200, including the clinical and non-clinical, many of whom are part-time, I should add. And it works very well. Um, and it, you're big enough to actually have your own in-house education and training systems. You're big enough for many of the services I've been mentioning to actually effectively refer to your own organization so the commoner outpatients diagnostics etc you can have um, enough patients to make those clinically effective and cost effective but at the same time working with your colleagues in neighboring pcns so we provide x-ray ultrasound echocardiography to um, probably about 200,000 patients although we only have 40,000 of our own we provide a cataract service to about 150,000 patients, um, not our 40,000. And I think you can cross collaborate like this with other PCNs once you've got enough of a base um, to do it yourself. And uh, although it feels somewhat worrying to invest in all this equipment and these personnel at our size, think how much more difficult it must be if there are three practices who have only recently come together um, investing their own money in something which they then have to share and they perhaps don't know each other well enough to have the confidence to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and certainly my own experience of, of some of the new roles coming through, physicians, associates, clinical pharmacists, for, for me it's a, a couple of years out of date, but we had lots of those conversations about can we have 0.6 of a role, 0.2 of yeah. a role, how much do we need? For you working at that level, is it much more a case of, well, absolutely we can fill that person's time it's really a case of, of of where best we use them rather than how are we going to keep that person busy yes it is i mean it, it, it's quite easy to be confident to employ them um and to you know have developed clinical pathways we have a weekly educational meeting or we did before covid anyway we're now trying to do it virtually and um, all these clinical pathways can be discussed 
um, between us and agreed and then reviewed. And uh, that, that seems to work very well for us. Yeah, fantastic. What you, you've mentioned in there about how you're working with other PCNs locally to, to serve bigger populations. And one of the, the emergent themes in the white paper, well, I say emergent themes, that you've, you've referenced it already, it's, it's been around for a while, characterised as place in the white paper and, and formally integrated to care partnerships or interchangeable terms, which is somewhere between a PCN and, a, and an integrated care system. Can you sort of underline your, outs, your, your understanding of how that kind of intermediary level place integrated care partnership will work in practice uh, in, in terms of lo local organisations coming together? I think it's a challenge. I mean, as a PCN, you can develop your strategy, you can develop your five-year view and know what your local population wants. I mean, we're all encouraged to do population health management. And I think either informally or formally, um, those PCNs that are feeling confident are doing that and, and you know what you want. The minute you start working at a larger scale, there are some things you have in common. For instance, you may want to do better diabetic management, um, but you may have a specific passion for developing, for instance, a hysteroscopy service, which isn't shared by your colleagues. So um, I, I think it's really, um, it depends on the size of the project and the necessary patient base, what level you think at. You know, some projects can work at PCN level, Others need more patients referred in, so you have to work at several PCN level, several PCNs together levels, and then you might get up to ICP level for the bigger issues like, for instance, diabetes or mental health. So it, it depends just what the, what the clinical initiative is, what level you have to think at. So is it is it almost a bit like a, a kind of a funnel of however many patients you've got, it'll, the, the initiative will kind of stop at the right part of the funnel, if that isn't a too crude a way to put it? Yes, I, I, I think I think what you're saying, you know, it, what, what is the need that for the project you're thinking about, if you can afford to um, buy in the specialist staff, whether it be um, doctors or, or specialist nurses for that um, and for the equipment at PCN level that's fine but if you're talking about for instance a cataract service where you might want um, you know 300,000 pounds worth of equipment um, and you are going to want to probably do about 20 a week um, you know the math dictates that you have to work with other people or be sure to get referrals in from adjacent PCN. Yeah, okay. And you, you talked a bit about the scale of your, your practice, your PCM, being able to do a lot of stuff in-house. You mentioned education training, the, the management um, capabilities, as well as the clinical side of things. Are there any things that you'd like to do in-house that you're not currently or that, that maybe you've got planned? There, there are several um, other clinical initiatives we'd like to get going, um, but partly because of COVID and partly because of the um, rather difficult um, contracting and procurement process before it, um, we haven't been able to get going. There is, um, there is a reluctance for um, acute trust typically to release funds to let someone else do what they're doing, even if the someone else um, can do it more clinically efficiently and cheaper. Um, and this is one of, the, one of the shortfalls of the NHS really, the acute trusts tend to get most of the money and most of the influence and this, this is a bit of a barrier, I think, for developing local care. You know, we all know it makes sense. We all know that the most expensive place to deliver services is within a hospital. Um, so both clinically and financially, it makes sense to develop local care, um, which is what the new NHS is supposed to be about. But trying to get um, traditional providers to relinquish the funds um, in order to be provided better elsewhere is a major problem. Mm. That's that's a really interesting point, and uh, and you mentioned earlier population health management as well, and I wanted to come back to that. I think at a system level, kind of population health management makes sense, and and I think that the theory behind it, everyone kind of seems to throw their weight behind. At a practical level of of you know running a PCN or in primary care more widely, what does population health management actually mean to you? 
I was rather hoping you weren't going to ask me that because no one can answer that question. Um, <laughs> there's umpteen definitions of population health management. Yeah. I think what it really means is meeting meeting the needs, um, in particular the unmet needs of your local population. And to give you an example, I mean, our practice, we have 25% of people over 65. We're very much um, looking at improving long-term condition management. Um, eight miles down the road, there is the university practice. Um, they haven't got anybody over the age of 21, uh, and that, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but you know what I mean, you know, they, they don't have anybody over 65. Their unmet needs are completely different to ours. They need psychological services, they need addiction services, um, they probably need better contraception services. So their, un, their population health management look totally different to ours, even though we're, we're actually adjacent practices. And, and do you, or I suppose, have you felt historically enabled to work differently given the sort of contractual um, landscape of primary care? And, and do you think that you will be given additional um, abilities to kind of diversify, if you want, for, um, from how other practices work? Yeah, I'm, I'm nervous about that. Um, I mean, when we were a new care model, the Encompass MCP, we actually stepped outside of the normal, you know, contracting, commissioning, procurement um, mm -hmm. route. And we were able to develop multidisciplinary teams. We started employing paramedics before they became part of ARRS. We had more of a free reign and we did develop um, more rapidly during that phase than we have before or since. Um, so uh, my own feeling is that PCNs need much more empowerment than they're currently enjoying. Again, my own feeling is that we're largely reactive as PCNs at the moment, notwithstanding COVID. Um, you know, there is the there is the PCN enhanced service, and there are the various other contracts handed down from the centre or the CCG to do with COVID. But um, our own five-year strategic plans are, are very much you know a paper exercise at the moment and I'd really like to see that change. So again think about that population health element and, and the, the the control totals the system budgets the, the the theory behind that that will enable different ways of doing things. Are you having different conversations locally yet about how best Kent's money might be used to, to better serve the population and how primary care might start to see some more of that? Uh, we're having conversations, but um, n haven't actually seen any any action yet. And COVID's partly to blame, but even before that, you know, getting a mechanism for moving money around the system so that the, the, the money follows the patient, which is totally logical, and you can't really argue against the logic, but you will get pushback from traditional providers, particularly if they are acute trusts, saying, you know, even losing 3% of our income completely destabilizes the, the, the entire operation. So even if you can deliver certain services to patients more locally at less cost, we can't afford to let that go. And, and this, is, this is a major problem, I think, moving forward. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and it's it, it's the fundamental barrier, isn't it? That if not everyone can get paid and not everyone can can continue to do their jobs, then how how does anything develop? So, um, one thing I, I suppose attached with that whole funding piece and the service development and, and population health is is thinking about outcomes. And um, I'm sure you'll have a view on how well the NHS has really delivered outcomes for for patients in the past. How do you see the measurement um, of outcomes or the, or the achievement of outcomes changing in, in a new NHS? Well, we're doing quite a bit of that already in a way in that the COF the, the does look at outcomes in terms of the things that are measurable. So you can see how many of a certain disease category you've got within range so you know how many people are the right blood pressure the right hba1c for their diabetes etc etc those sorts of outcomes are, are very much part of the landscape already the much more difficult outcomes which are probably more interesting um, are the ones that tell us 
you know what sort of quality of life someone's having and how much they're having to go to hospital how much is being done in the community instead and the pe people are talking about dashboards and have been for a long time there are many variables which makes dashboards a bit of a minefield um for instance you know the, the the social status and the income of your patient population has a huge effect um on what you're going to be able to achieve um but to move towards more meaningful dashboards to earn autonomy as a pcn by using hospital services less um because you can complete patient journeys within your practice more I mean, this probably sounds terrible for people who are struggling providing ordinary GMS um, because of unfilled posts. But nevertheless, if we are serious about local care, that's what we should be aiming at. And I, I would have thought sequentially to give um, well-performing PCNs more of the budget based on how much less of the hospital system you're using would be a reasonable thing to try. And, and in terms of being able to actually measure that and, and monitor it, do you think that you have the data available locally in, in Kent to look at those sorts of things? We have some data and, and data is key to all of this and it has to be accurate data and it has to be timely data. Um, we have the Kent care record in Kent, which, which is helpful. Um, and there are, there are various bits of data coming forward about rates per thousand of use of urgent care and elective care so there there is there is some data but it, it's by no means complete yet and and what data are there that you'd really love to see is it stuff around how you're joining up with the hospital is it that um you know social care data to better understand other needs of the population are the, are the particular things that you sort of sit down i think it'd be really nice to know this about our, our patients our patient list yeah, I think there's a range of data that it will be good to have. You know, better better population profiling would be would be really helpful. I mean, obviously we know, you know, age sex profiling, but we we don't know everything um, about um, how many people are you know, disadvantaged, how many people are quite frankly socially isolated. Um, all the social prescribing side of things can be developed more and better. We employ Two social prescribers but there's more work to be done there i think that would be really helpful um, we can get data about how frequently people are using urgent care in the hospital system and we do um pre-covid -pre anyway um look at the people who are the heaviest users of urgent care and try to put social prescribing and more medical input into them we have community mdts to try to look at all of this and see are we doing absolutely the best we can for this patient in every aspect not just the medical model but the social model the housing model everything so the more complete and holistic the data is the better job we'll do with our community mdts um, but you know data is always a challenge i think it's improving slowly but um, we need we need more of it and it has to be timely yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think probably everyone in our audience, both NHS and, and industry, I know we've got quite a lot of, of NHS colleagues uh, listening in today. Um, I think everyone's sort of f familiar with the need to look at variation and that's a, a huge priority in many agendas across the NHS. Is, is it the variation data that you're interested in or, or is it more absolute than that? I think you, you start from where you are with your population, you know, and we, we have done um, sort of comparator um, data um, analysis to other towns, the same size with the same sort of demographics as Whitstable. Even that isn't, isn't totally robust because the social structure is different in different towns, even if the demography is the same. So uh, I, I think that there's a range of things that we really need. Um, but to improve on where you are seems um, a reasonable challenge to improve compared to some leafy suburb somewhere that's got a nicer infrastructure it is, is a, perhaps an unfair challenge. Yeah, okay, that, that, that's an interesting perspective. And, and a couple of the questions that came in from, from NHS colleagues today were about kind of the sharing of, of best practice and how do, you, how do you improve from where you are? Um, 
how how do you approach that if you're looking at a clinical service whichever it may be do you look at look at to other places for for ideas of, of how you do that and and do you have other people coming to you and, and then i suppose the follow-up to that is how do you then share good stuff that you're doing well happy to take ideas from anywhere in the world and um you know the, the concepts of various things that we've tried have, have certainly not come from England um, so it is, it is quite interesting to you know be humble and then accept that there are you know there are good things happening all over the place if only you can find them and also to um, publish what you are doing if someone will take it for publication and to share I mean before COVID we've had a constant stream of visitors and um, that's that's been really good because you see what you're doing through the lens of someone else's experience and and that, that that's interesting in itself um, so it's a two-way thing when visitors come so I, I think one, one should always be on the lookout for better ways of doing things the, the principle we work by is to try and provide high quality GMS alongside as much integrated health and social care as possible um, it always struck me as very odd that we were all medical students as one tribe and then we suddenly we qualified and uh, we became two tribes there was the hospital tribe and the gp tribe and why is that you know a lot of gps have got skills which could take a lot of hospital work out into general practice and give them added job satisfaction um, it also means if you have a group of gypsies or jippers in your practice you can upskill each other as well and the whole thing becomes a learning environment which, which is great so i think integration is is my watchword. it has been for a couple of decades now <laughs> and um, it does seem to be something which is attractive to patients and it also attracts um, clinical colleagues to come and work in Whitstable, uh, we, we never had any unfilled posts, and in fact, for most clinical posts, we have a waiting list. So wow. that was unexpected, um, unexpected benefit of doing things slightly differently. Yeah, absolutely, that's fantastic to hear. Um, just following up quickly, there you, you're talking about your your population locally. How engaged are your local population, your citizens, in the development of the PCN new services, etc.? We've got pretty good buy-in, actually. I'm pleased to say. And we've got got the usual patient participation group. Uh, what we've also got, which is slightly more unusual, is the Friends of Whitstable Healthcare registered charity, and that's a wonderful symbiosis. Um, they they run a cafe in our main building, Estreview Medical Centre, and uh, which is great for patients, um, but it's also good for recruitment and they fundraise for equipment and i would you know like to you know pay them a debt of gratitude you know without their help we possibly wouldn't have bought the extra equipment we wouldn't have bought um three hundred thousand pounds worth of ophthalmology equipment um they've just recently bought us um our third ultrasound machine um it's marvelous you know so there's very much um a, a, a true partnership with patients and uh, we use the ppg to float ideas you know if we're thinking of developing i suppose the most recent was a wet amd clinic um lucentis injections and ilia injections for people with wet amd um you know do you think there's a need for this would you like to develop it i mean the answer typically is yes of course <laughs> um but uh, it's good to have them as a sounding board and we use them for development of our um, patient advice leaflets as well and um, other forms of communication and that they, they really do help with that because um you know as a doctor you might think you're communicating very well but um if you put it in front of a panel of lay people you actually realize perhaps you could do better yeah absolutely yeah um yesterday it was revealed that virgin um have been awarded a, a, a significant contract for providing community services just across the, the thames from you in, in essex do you think private providers or private provision will play a, a greater role in in the integrated care landscape uh it's possible isn't it um i mean it's it's you know politically um a minefield isn't it i mean some people like the idea of um availability of choice to go to private providers or um nhs providers other people think it's it's awful um we actually work with anybody who's prepared to work with us um so i i think private providers have a place 
Um, with regard to community services, that's another controversy you've touched on there, Tom, because um, you know some of us believe that if you're a well-organised PCN, you're much better off employing your own community trust people rather than having them employed by another organisation. And um, I know several people have tried to do just that. Um, so whether it's Virgin or um, an NHS community trust, do you want that or do you want to have the budget and employ them yourself and have them actually genuinely integrated into your team? Um, it's an interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of sort of unrelated questions, I suppose, just to, just to sort of cover the ground that, that we had in mind. Um, obviously, a lot of our audience are, are interested in the medicines landscape. Um, as things develop and, and we're looking at population health and, and integration, do you expect the role and perception of medicines to change at all in, in the new NHS? Well, it's the easiest thing to measure in primary care is is what drugs you're prescribing and how much it's costing. And I think we're all acutely aware um, that we don't really want to be an outlier on the expensive side of things. Um, so I, th I think there's been a you know, it's a well-trodden path to be as careful as you can to prescribe clinically effective, cost-effective medication. And, um, you know, there, there have been various schemes over the years to um, incentivize um, general practices and now PCNs to be, to be just that be cost effective and clinically effective what's more difficult is judging the outcome of choosing one drug over its competitor in terms of you know use of secondary care morbidity and mortality and um, because there are so many other variables that's a really hard one but um, I think that the emphasis on cost effective prescribing will never go away and uh, we, we're all very well aware of that and we personally and our PCM we employ two pharmacists and one pharmacy technician to help us um, be as effective as possible in that respect. And, and uh, could you just expand a bit more in terms of those pharmacists on kind of what what their jobs look like? Is it is it about just keeping on top of reviews and making sure people are getting the right things or, or, or are they doing more besides that? Yeah, I mean, they are doing reviews, um, of course. They're also dispensing advice to patients who appear to be um, outliers in the use of, for instance, inhalers. So there is a bit of a clinical role there as well. But they support the lead, um, the lead GP for medicines with regard to evaluating um, new, new medications and new products, uh, evaluating nice guidelines that actually refer to um, changes in medication so they're that they're part doing reviews but part um, of the mechanism for making sure we're as effective as we can be and as up to, up to date as we can be with with our prescribing yeah okay and as I suppose the the, the pharmacists bed themselves into primary care and, and themselves sort of skill up and, and improve their or, or broaden their own you know clinical um, education do you see a, that there's any likelihood that sort of more hospital medicines as it were might move into primary care well I, I'm, I'll probably get shot by some of my colleagues who are listening but I, my, my response to that is I hope so um, yep. you know we're having discussions with the rheumatology department at the moment about doing um, infusion work in primary care um, I don't see why that shouldn't happen um, if people have the capability and the estate in other words the rooms to have someone doing infusions it would seem a natural next step to me and you know I'm back to my my sort of principle of, of integration where possible um, why should someone have to go to hospital for an infusion when it can be done in a practice if the practice is willing and appropriately remunerated for that so yes, I mean, there will be a gradual move into primary care. Um, on the acute side, we do the entire DVT pathway, including looking for underlying causes. So all the anticoagulant prescribing happens in a primary care setting. Um, we don't bother the hematology department unless it's a very complex case. So both on the elective and the non-elective side, primary care can do more if it has enthusiasm and the personnel to do that. Um, I, I do recognize this is not for everybody. Some people are struggling to get day-to-day -day GMS done 
because of all sorts of constraints and they have my entire sympathy but for those of us that want to move forward it would be great to be able to do so yeah absolutely yeah and, and that you know it's a very important consideration isn't it that there's all sorts of pressures it, it, i mean obviously those those pressures are one thing in terms of thinking about that move of, of maybe more specialized care in various different ways to, to primary care you obviously feel quite comfortable that you can accommodate that what what might some of the apprehensions be you know if there was a systemic desire to move infusions into primary community settings what are the apprehensions that might exist within primary care about taking those sorts of things on I, I think there are several I mean you know first of all it's sheer workload you know uh, ca can you take something else on um, or would you rather not do that thank you very much <laughs> um, the other one is remuneration I mean it, it's going to be thrown into what is sometimes referred to as the dustbin of general practice you know chuck everything in the dustbin and it gets dealt with um, that's a rather rude expression but you've, you've probably heard it before um, or is this considered you know extra work that ought to be remunerated appropriately and probably can be done um, at less than the cost of going to hospital for it um, you also need the estate it's, it's, it's not a very sexy subject but um, you know the more you take on including the ARRS roles you've got to put them somewhere so um, more recognition that if general practice is to provide local care it needs better estate um, in order to do that um, and that that's really important so uh, estates are really good one I hadn't hadn't sort of anticipated that coming up but thinking about that additional need and you know in other countries and even you know in private settings in this country healthcare is literally delivered in office blocks and, and things like that do you imagine kind of a more uh, responsive if that's the right word use of different types of estate within a within a place i think it has to be fit for purpose and obviously a clinical room looks different from an office in that it's got a sink in it and it's, it's got enough space for a couch a computer uh, and the sink etc so it has to be good estate not just any old estate and um, it, it's difficult for general practice to develop anything that's not used for GMS at the moment because GMS estate um, if everything works correctly one gets um, notional rent for that um, but if you develop extra rooms for basically community contracts you're on your own you're in the real world of business in that you will have to get a mortgage and then attract community contracts to pay for the mortgage the staff the service and hopefully give you a margin to grow your practice some more um, that's the world I've lived with for quite a long time now um, but I, I tend to lose the audience <laughs> when I get to this part of the talk because <laughs> people are <laughs> people are not really keen on taking that risk for a contract that may be five years long with the you know promise of a renewal but you can't be certain so uh, I understand the, the reluctance um, in colleagues who love the idea of providing everything I've mm. talked about already but are very nervous about the potential downfall if the CCG or the ICS as will be suddenly take away the contract yeah absolutely yeah. and it, it, it is those practical things that get in the way isn't it and you know not that they're small practical things but um, you know fundamentally if you if you have nowhere to operate or you are going to be operating at, at risk then then where's the incentive so um, just just one more question really is is about um, whether you see healthcare industries playing a role in supporting the future health and, and social care landscape can you just define healthcare industries for me so so uh, well a, a lot of our our audience are pharmaceutical companies medical device Pharma, technologies yeah. yeah sure yes i i think there's potentially a role there most definitely and um you know, can give you practical examples of that i mean you know if if a pharma company um, has you know a drug in a in an area of interest. You know, the idea of um, helping set up training to develop um, community pathways is of fantastic value, and that they already do that to an extent by bringing in expert speakers who are already got experience of community pathways to share those with new people who want to do the same. I think there's there's that sort of um, input 
can be of fantastic value and you know we have had expert speakers um, sponsored by pharma coming into um, Whitstable and it's been very helpful. Um, if you look at um, equipment manufacturers, if you're thinking of setting up a service, um, for instance, cataract surgery, you know, it may well be that the maker of a lens will be prepared to give you um, some equipment in, or in, in return for you ordering lenses from them. These sorts of things happen. So th th there's definitely um, partnerships which are of value and um, they can be explored and, and improved. Are there any areas of what you're doing or thinking about at the moment where where maybe you could see a role for for industry support that you haven't previously explored? We are keen to develop um, some scoping services in-house and um, any help with developing scoping services would be useful. Um, I have to say at the moment the block is actually getting a contract. Um, to do that even though there's huge waiting lists locally and an unmet need and we could do it at less than tariff but that that's that's perhaps a bit too much detail um but yes um there there are areas where, where industry could certainly help um and you know we're alive to that yeah and would, would you look to to industry for sort of providing data and insight in sort of local populations or that variation data those sorts of things that we talked about we've done that once in the past um population profiling um which was actually of great interest um it would have been nice to have done that maybe every three or five years but um the the industry partner lost interest in doing it having done it once which was a shame, but it was a great insight for us. You know, it gave us a lot more information about um, the activity or lack of activity of a lot of our population and how many people lived alone, how many people had a car, how many people didn't. Uh, so that, that that was actually quite interesting. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I suppose that sort of stuff is in, increasingly important. So th thanks very much, John, for your, for your time today. We're going to have to draw to a close there, but um, fantastic to have a chat with you as always and, and appreciate it's a really chaotic time. So very much appreciate you joining us uh, this afternoon. Um, for our audience out there, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, we are going to be back next week. I'll be speaking with, uh, sorry, next month, I'll be speaking with Professor Indy Singh, who's the Chief Pharmacist at Birmingham Hospital about the, the evolving, evolving picture around medicines and um, specialised commissioning and, and areas like that. Uh, please follow our LinkedIn page, uh, NHS Whispers, um, and if you want to get in touch after the event, it's nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk. So thanks again, John. Um, have a good weekend and um, yeah, thank you everybody at home. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.